Hi! Hey! Welcome to The Cordial Catholic, a podcast for non-Catholics, for new Catholics, not looking to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. I'm Keith Little, an evangelical convert to Catholicism, and this podcast is born out of one particular idea. It began for me when a Protestant pastor I was working for asked me the question, what's more important, the Bible or tradition? That question uh, led me into a deep dive into the history of Christianity, the history of the Bible, the history of my Christian worldview, where it all came from, and for the first time in, in that exploration, I encountered the Catholic Church in its own words, for the very first time. It was then that I realized that what I thought I knew about the Catholic Church and the Catholic faith was based in large part on misinformation and, more often than not, on simple misunderstandings. Well, this podcast serves to fill in that same gap, the gap between what you think Catholics believe and what we actually do. No misinformation here. And this week, I am joined by Adam Bly, a a trainer of exorcists, to talk about one of the most fascinating topics I can think of in terms of the Catholic realm, and that is exorcism. We dig very deeply in here with an absolute expert on the subject, uh, looking at the history of exorcism, what exorcism is, how the church uses it, and I think above all, for, for my purposes, our purposes here on, on this podcast, the, the apologetic evangelical tool that exorcism is. Uniquely, how exorcism really proves, in a very special way, the truth and authenticity of the Catholic Church, the Apostolic Catholic Church, and the Catholic faith. It's a fantastic, fascinating conversation that I think you will absolutely love. (laughs) You loved having it. I think you'll love hearing it. I hope that you do. This podcast is brought to you by our patrons at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic and our one-time sponsors at paypal.me slash cordialcatholic. And I have a new uh, patron to thank this month, or this week, I should say. Thank you to Noah for your generous support of the show. Thank you so much, Noah. It goes a long, long way, guys. This is not my full-time job. It's a a busy young family with another uh, different... (laughs) full-time job. So your support, your prayers, your financial giving to this show helps make this thing possible week after week. So thank you for your support. Uh, Those links are in the show notes. And please pray for me. Know that I'm praying for you too. And if you feel led to support the show financially, check out those show notes for those links. And thank you. And now, without any further ado, my absolutely fascinating conversation with Adam Bly on exorcism. Guys, please listen and enjoy. Hey friends, welcome back to the show. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. If you are watching on YouTube, thank you. Please hit the bell, subscribe to the channel so you get notified of all the new videos that we put out like this one. And uh, leave some comments, some feedback on this episode. I'd love to hear from you, your thoughts, your, your ideas, your comments. Always a fun place, the comment section on YouTube. So please do interact there. And if you are listening on podcast, thank you. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify, please leave a quick rating or review because that helps push the podcast out to new listeners and interviews and conversations like this one will spread further. And thank you for listening there. Guys, this is going to be an absolutely fantastic conversation. I am joined by Adam Bly. He is a church-decreed exorcist, (laughs) church-decreed expert on religious demonology and exorcism for the Diocese of Pittsburgh. He's helped train exorcists for over 15 years and attended hundreds of solemn exorcisms. He's the author of a bunch of fine books that I'm a big fan of, The Catholic Guide to Miracles, Separating the Authentic from the Counterfeit, The Exorcism Files, True Stories of Demonic Possession, and The History of Exorcism, out just this year from uh, Sophia Institute Press, I believe it is. And, and Adam, i got to say, I, I loaded up your bio last night, okay? And from last night to this morning, another book has appeared on Google Books that says Coming 2024. So that, I don't know what slipped in there under the radar overnight, <laughs> Adam, but welcome to the show. Anyway, thanks for being here, and hello. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that one's on hold right now because I'm trying to wrap up a canon law degree, and life is <laughs> life is a little too busy right at the moment. <laughs> as you do, as you do. Yeah, I don't know what happened. Honestly, from last night to this morning, somehow it slipped onto Google Books. I don't know. It's pretty pretty exciting. So uh, we'll look forward to that when you finish the other things you're working on. That's amazing. 
Listen, I want to say, first of all, Adam, I'm, I'm thrilled to have you because I have, so I'm a convert to the Catholic faith. All listeners to this show are converts, new Catholics, those who are looking into the Catholic faith from other Christian denominations. And I, I have, I've been a fan of you and your work for a little bit. I followed you. I've read some of the stuff that you write because, and I'll maybe touch on this a bit later in the conversation, but the, you know, exorcism for me was actually one of the things that drew me into looking at the, the truth claims of the Catholic faith. And, and you, sir, in no small part, were one of the guys I was reading about and reading uh, stuff from back then looking into the faith. So th- thank you. <laughs> it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Oh, um, yeah. And and anything good there that was that was grace from God. Yeah. So that's that's not about me, but that's about God inspiring yeah. whatever you know He wanted to inspire in you. Yeah, well said, well said, sir. Okay, I want to begin with again on the ground floor because there are a lot of misconceptions, a lot of Hollywood ideas, a, a lot floating out there on what exorcism is. So so starting at the very ground floor here, Adam, you are an expert, you train exorcists, you've witnessed lots of exorcisms. What is exorcism? Let's begin there. Well, when you say that word, it, that word is a little more general than what most people mean. So most people mean what they see in the movies, and that is a possessed person, a priest, maybe a few priests, and a demon animating that person's body. Um, that's what most people mean. But exorcism simply is a command to an evil spirit to depart. And that's not only done for possessed people. That's done as part of the baptismal rite. That's done as part of RCIA as a person enters the church. Uh, that can be done informally, um, you know, as part of a house blessing or um, as part of deliverance prayers that a priest might do where, where they're using a command, not using the rite of exorcism, but just a command. So technically exorcism means a command with an implied punishment if you don't do it. So if you think of a police officer, a police officer says, freeze, get on the ground. You know the implication is if you don't, you're going to get roughed up, right? You're going to get tased. You know there's, there's an authority behind that saying you should comply or there's going to bad things are going to happen. That's kind of the essence of what exorcism is. It's a command that the church is giving to the devil or a demon. And the implication behind it is back off, leave this person alone, leave this house alone, or else. And the or else is God backing that up and forcing them to comply. And they don't like that because not only do they suffer at the presence of God, uh, but they then get punished for their failure downstairs before they get reassigned. And so they're doubly dreading the church's intervention. Yeah, yeah, very good. And again, you mentioned you mentioned demons already, obviously, and that's central to the claim. If there is exorcism as possible, there must be a demonic realm. And I know, you know, my first experience with this, Adam, was as a Pentecostal Christian. I, I, I became Christian in high school. Uh, that was the first flavor that I, my friends were evangelical, so I, I became evangelical. That's, that's all I knew. And we met this guy who began going to our church, who was a reform, you know, who became Christian out of a Satanism. And he was quite involved in Satanism. And he he was circumspect. He wasn't trying to uh, excite us or trying to like, it wasn't dramatized is what I'm trying to say. It wasn't very, it wasn't like he was trying to um, hype things up. He was very kind of mild mannered and very, very soft-spoken, but he would talk occasionally about his experiences in Satanism. And it was some really dark, crazy stuff that was, you know, for me, for the very first time as a young evangelical in late high school was really eye-opening. And I went, so this is real? Like these things are real and exist? And I guess my, you know, my, my question for you, Adam, is I, I, would, I would think that many Catholics aren't even remotely aware that there's a whole other realm out there that we're not really paying attention to. Is that, is that fair to say? Well, I think it's fair to say that the majority of people probably don't really believe in the spiritual in the sense of it being a true reality. Yeah, so yeah. 
if you say um, bacteria exist and they can cause disease and they're on every doorknob you touch and every keyboard and every phone that you pick up, you might say, well, that's kind of crazy talk. I don't see any bacteria. You know, you're telling me this thing can give me a disease that might even kill me. You're nuts. It's just a doorknob. Prove to me that it's there. And you can't. Uh, unless you had some sophisticated equipment to do that. But if you were just two people talking, you'd have a hard time. So a lot of people take, I think, without realizing it, you know, a position of, well, that extraordinary stuff, yeah, you know, that was old misunderstandings, that was epilepsy, they didn't know what it was, and, um, you know, the devil's just uh, an analogy for the evil in people, and, you know, without even thinking it through, I think a lot of people don't want to believe that it's real. Partly because, and this is at the core of it, if that's real, then God's real. And if God's real, I'm accountable. Because that, I think, is at the core of what is scary about all this. It's not so much that there's a mo an invisible monster around that can harm people, but the more important thing is God's real and I'm accountable. And nobody likes that feeling. Everybody wants to say, I'm a nice person. I judge myself to be a good person. I'm going to go to heaven. Everything's fine. We all want to say that, and we all rationalize. Whereas if you imagine maybe somebody in your life that doesn't like you, and if you were to ask them, if, is this guy a good person? They probably would be like, heck no, and let me give you 12 reasons why, right? <laughs> so... We don't want to be subjected to an objective measure of our morality and our goodness because we want to just live in our bubble that I decide that I'm a good person. I only look at the good things I do. I explain away the bad things that I do. And there's no God that's going to shine a light on that and objectively judge me. And so that is part of what I think keeps people resisting the idea that it's actually real. Most Catholics have heard of the idea of exorcism and demons, but to actually believe it's a concrete reality um, opens the door to that issue of God and judgment and demons kind of represent temptation. They represent evil and accountability for evil because they are enjoying, and I don't mean that in the, that is pleasurable, they are experiencing the judgment of God. So here's this twisted, raving creature that disobeyed God and is in a state of eternal torment, and it represents the consequences of disobeying God, right? And so not only is it scary, but it's symbolic of that. So there's a lot of things that are deeper psychological reasons, I think, that these ideas are scary to people. And the other thing, too, that, that you notice is the idea that, oh, that's for Catholics over here. Like, these beliefs in exorcism and, and demons, that's what these guys over here believe. And somehow just not believing it will make it not a reality. But, of course, I'm sure you've seen, Adam, your fair share of... I mean, Catholics understand the demonic world, the, the spiritual realm, but that realm is not somehow just relegated just to Catholics experiencing those things, right? Like, we can say, uh, they do that over here, but no, 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 <laughs> that's not quite how it works, right? Yeah, I mean, the idea of, of dealing with the demonic and, and praying against it is, is not only a core thing in Christianity, it's a core thing in Judaism, it's a core thing in Islam, it appears in Buddhism, it appears in some um, Native American cultures, it appears in Indian Hinduism, um, it's a universal human experience. So beyond saying that, oh, it's just this sect of Christianity that believes this wacky idea, it's actually every major religion in the world down through history, starting, starting you know, with, with the origin of writing. So, and they all describe the same creature. They describe a troublesome, deceptive spirit that if it gets into your life, it destroys you. Um, and they have different names for it, but if you say, well, describe it to me, they all describe the same thing. Um, so, again, uh, to come back to, you know, an even harder point on that is if you reject that, you're rejecting Jesus. You're rejecting 
seven major gospel accounts of his exorcisms. So if you say that that wasn't real, then either Jesus didn't know what he was doing or he was lying. And if he was lying, then the whole gospel falls apart. And if he didn't know what he was doing, then was he God? Like you can't, you can't take out the demonic and exorcism from Christianity without the whole thing collapsing. I think that's the fascinating thing, and you touch on this in in your book, the history of exorcism, uh, Jesus, Jesus as as an exorcist, and the exorcisms during you know in, in the Gospels, and that's something I think is fascinating because, okay, if this was a reality in Christ's time, if we see Jesus as an exorcist exorcising people, you know, also doing healings, but also doing actual explicit exorcisms, why would we think that that thing stops being? A reality suddenly Christ comes you know, and then demons are, are are gone. Like of course that that continues, right? And I think well, he explicitly commanded the church yeah, to go do right. these things after he left. Right. So he, he didn't say it would be wrapped up and resolved. God allows through His permissive will, He allows the demons to continue to tempt us because ultimately it's for our good. Without the, without the struggle of temptation, you don't spiritually mature. And so he wants children that are strong and obedient, not passive and untested. Yeah, yeah. And so the, the idea then is, so I guess to go a step further, the, the solemn you know, rite of exorcism, the solemn exorcism, right, is, is that then actual kind of demonic possession that, you know, as you explain here, God is going to have to allow in some degree, can we unpack like, you know, how a person gets from there? Because of course, exorcism in, you know, in, in baptism or a house blessing and exorcism, that's one thing. But then that full-blown exorcism where a person is, is possessed, that's, that's what Hollywood often sees, right? So how does it, how does it get to that, to that point for a person? Well, two ways. One is God just allows it. And there are rare cases with certain saints that went through periods of possession right. at, the ex- at the extreme end of the spiritual life, meaning they're very advanced in the spiritual state. They're very close to God. And as kind of a final trial, they will go through limited periods of possession. That, that has happened with a number of saints. And if we think that that's shocking, we just need to look at the ancient Jewish tradition that Jesus did, which was to go into the desert. So the idea was and still is in Christianity, first you defeat the body, meaning you defeat the passions. So if you just follow your passions and your appetites, you're little more than an animal without discrimination. If you just eat whatever you want, have sex with whatever you want to have sex with, consume hedonistically for your entire life, you're basically living on instinct. So the first step in the Christian life is defeat the body, the passions. The second is to defeat the world. And then once those two are defeated, meaning uh, seeking fame, power, money, that type of thing, once they're defeated, the devil is no longer veiled. So then you have to defeat the devil directly. And that's what Jesus did. And that was the old tradition, was you would go into the desert, away from the world, away from anything that could lead to your passions and your pleasures. There's nothing there. And there the devil is then met, unveiled. Um, And so at the extreme end of the spiritual life, one meets the devil. If we think of the cure of ours and, you know, the many stories of his bed catching on fire and him looking and saying, oh, it's just Satan again and rolling over (laughs) and going to sleep, um, that type of thing. We know advanced states encounter the devil and this preternatural activity, and then some of them go through periods of possession. It's kind of an extreme trial. So that's hyper rare, and people need to remember. We're not talking about the average Joe. I'm not saying that just some person watching this or listening is just going to become possessed because God allows it. I'm talking about very advanced people in the spiritual life. You're talking, you know, Padre Pio was not possessed, but he was beaten bloody by demons. Why did God allow that? He's one of the most famous saints in the world. Incredible miracles of almost every type. And yet he was beaten bloody by demons on a regular basis. So I'm talking about extremely advanced individuals, and they're very rare in history. 
The more common one is people violating the first commandment. So they're putting a spirit other than God first, which they're turning to that spirit, that created spirit, and looking for comfort, information, or power, which is basically the three reasons people interact with spirits. And by doing that, by turning to that created spirit and saying, give me comfort, teach me something about the afterlife, give me some favor or influence in the world, you've told God implicitly, I don't trust you, I'm not going to wait on you, I want what I want on my terms when I want it, and I'm going to get it from this other spirit. And so you've broken your friendship with God, you violated the first commandment, and now you've entered into a relationship with this spirit. And ultimately, that progresses to possession, because there is no created spirit that's going to enter into that dialogue with you, except a demon. A holy angel is not going to draw you into violating the first commandment. A soul in purgatory is not going to do it. They're on the escalator to heaven. They, they want to get there eventually, and God's not going to allow them to. And damned souls are stuck with the demons. So the people that are possessed almost invariably were playing around with divination, black magic usually, real black magic. Not I bought a book at Barnes & Noble, but real ritualistic <laughs> yeah. stuff like you alluded to that your, your acquaintance yeah. told you yeah. about. Generally, it's stuff like that. Um, and, and generally, they're in pretty deep with the spiritualism in some form or, you know, cutting deals with spirits. Now, there are degrees, of course, right? So it doesn't go from, in my understanding, it doesn't go from somebody messing around with something to suddenly being full-blown possessed, right? There's there's varying degrees of, of ways that we know, the church has told us over the ages throughout time that demons kind of interact with us. It doesn't always go to full-blown possession. Is that right? Well, ultimately, if you are interacting with them, they are going to want, once they get the ability to speak to you directly in your head, or you might perceive it as hearing them speak. Um, and I'm not talking about mental illness. Yeah, I was gonna say, yeah, yeah. For, for the people that are suffering with mental illness, that's different. And, and those people can have hallucinations of voices. The three classic levels is infestation. That just means they can do extraordinary things in a place or a location. So somebody who owned that house or that location at some point down the line through history invited the demonic to take dominion over it. And they don't leave just because that person died off or they sold the house. They only leave when they're kicked out. So that's an infestation where it's basically their turf. Okay. Then there's oppression. And that's when they are attacking a person. So wherever that person goes, they're still under attack, not just when they're in that house. And that comes from some level of relationship. Now, that attack can be on the body, it can be on the mind, it can be both, it's usually both. It's a torment. It's kind of like living with an abusive spouse you can't get away from. Okay, it's really ugly, it's nasty, um, painful, it's gross in ways that I'm not going to, I don't describe in interviews because it's disgusting. The idea there, the demon always wants one of two things. Kill yourself to end all this suffering, or let us have you entirely. So the oppression is designed to wear the person down, usually isolate them also in life, split them away from their family, wear them down to either suicide or give them possession. Um, now, there are people that don't go through the phase of oppression. So the people that are resisting the demon that don't necessarily want it. They don't know it's a demon. They're playing around with the occult and they get in a little too deep. The demon gets a hold on them figuratively. It gets some authority over them. And then it, it starts hurting them to try to drive them to either suicide or possession. There's another type of person who knows it's a demon and wants it. That person, the demon's not going to torment. It's just going to say, let's skip to full possession. I'll lend you my strength or my you know, supposed powers. You, it'll, I'll do you all kinds of favors. It'll be great. And so people can kind of skip the being bullied into it by just explicitly asking for it. 
terrible idea. These things are liars. By definition, they're liars. When they speak, they lie. They can't create anything. All they can do is create the illusion of doing things. Um, they're dirtbags in the sense that once they get in your life, they are going to turn on you and torture you sooner or later. And it's going to be awful. Um, you know, possession is, is a gross way to live. And you have less and less control over your own self. They take over your body. You have blackouts where they're just using your body as their own for hours or days at a time. You really cease to be living in a normal human life in any sense. So it's infestation, oppression, possession. But some people skip right to the end is what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. I guess, I mean, you've... <laughs> You've seen crazy things, Adam, and just the way you talk about demons in a kind of a familiar sense, like these are these are real. Of course, they are, but uh, you know, as dirt bags, that's 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 crazy that <laughs> this whole world exists. How does somebody come to to you guys in the Diocese of Pittsburgh, for example, or come to the exorcists you've trained or your team? How does somebody come to you? How do they get to that point? I guess I know there's. There's checks in terms of, you mentioned before, of, of mental health, mental well-being. We're not talking about people who are schizophrenic or people who are mentally ill. So how do they get to, to you guys, to, the, to that line? Yeah, and you know, first off, this is a, a finer theological point, but I do have to apologize. It's not our place to judge them, even though they're fallen, horrible creatures. In, in the um, spiritual landscape, we are a lesser creature right now than even a fallen angel. So it's not my place to judge them and call them dirtbags. But yes, I am around these things every week. They're very familiar to me. They know they're fallen and awful things. Um, And so, you know, when I say that, I don't mean to judge them. I know I am judging them. But um, yeah, it's a normal part of my life. And... Uh, unfortunately, they're you know a normal part of every week. So, how do people come in? Well, they 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 call the diocese or they talk to their priest, and they eventually get sent to me. I do a phone intake interview, which is fairly extensive, gather a lot of information. Um, then, if it seems like it could possibly be a legitimate case, we then will schedule diagnostic prayer. Because you can't just do an exorcism because you think it sounds legit. And we don't do them, of course, just because somebody demands it. You can't go to the church and say, I demand an exorcism. It's my right. It's not your right. Um, It's something the church decides whether to do. And that means the bishop either approves it or he doesn't. He doesn't have to. And no matter what you say, you can't force that to happen. And a lot of people try to. um, Because canon law, the law of the church regulates exorcism. So you literally cannot do it unless there are proofs of possession. There are objective proofs. They're then shown to the bishop and then he judges whether to say yes or not. And those proofs are knowing all languages, ancient, modern, dead languages, whatever it is, knowing hidden things a person couldn't possibly know. And I'm talking details, not vague stuff like, you once stole something. That's vague. I'm talking when you were 17, in the summer, we saw you steal this pen from that person's desk while you were left alone in the room for five minutes. Like really specific stuff. Um, Detecting the holy, knowing whether something's blessed or not, you put out 10 bottles of water, all identical. One of them was blessed before the person arrived. Every single time they can pick up, that's the one I don't like. I can't touch that one. And all the others are fine. There's many variations on detecting the holy. And the last one is strength beyond their condition. So essentially people say supernatural strength, but that's the wrong word because supernatural is above nature and only God is above nature. But The strength is pretty incredible, and I've worked in prisons in psychology. I've seen crazy strength from psychosis, and I've seen rage strength that was pretty impressive. But adrenaline-based strength like that comes in a burst, and then the body's exhausted. The stuff with the demons, it goes on for hours. They never get tired. And 
all the men, you know, in the very violent cases, there'll be men trying to gently restrain the person from hurting themselves or hurting other people. Everybody else is exhausted. Two or three hours later, your, your muscles are quivering. You're so tired. They're, they're not phased. They're not even sweating. And then when it's over and the human being comes back to their senses and they're now in control of their body again, they're not even aware that they're sore. They don't even feel sore. So it's a different kind of strength than just wow. adrenaline. Wow. And you say, too, that people who are possessed have, like, have blackout periods. So are there times when this person is just walking around and the demon is just kind of walking around town doing demonic things? This person really has no idea until maybe, I guess, they recognize what's happening and seek out help from an exorcism team? Okay, so yes, they do have blackouts. Um, it varies in duration. We don't know why certain ones are longer than others. Um, so the person's experience will be like, I can't remember Tuesday and Wednesday of last week. I have no idea. Other people will tell us <clears throat> um, they had a blackout and they came to in the street, beaten bloody wow. in some other neighborhood that they've never been in. And they don't know why they're there. And they're wearing different clothes than the last thing they remember. That kind of thing. Um, other people will describe that they blacked out and people told them that they saw them acting really strange. And were you on drugs or something? Like I tried to talk to you and you ignored me and you were doing such and such. So yeah, they, um, they will sometimes experience blackouts where the demon takes over. They're not conscious at all as a rule. Sometimes the demon will allow them to be aware of what's going on as a form of torment. Right, right. Um, but yes, it's, it's in psychology, we call it a fugue state, which is a dissociative disorder that people under a lot of stress will sometimes have where they'll kind of black out and come to in a different location hours later. But that's more of a stress-induced dissociation. It's very different. Yeah. And I guess you've mentioned this before. I think this is very fascinating for listeners to understand. Demons first of all, can't act apart from God allowing them to act because they're, they're fallen angels, they, but God, ha, you know, they're, not, they're not above God in control, right? So they've rejected God as angels. They're, they're fallen angels. We call them demons now. But God has to allow them in some way to interact with the world. So you mentioned before the idea of, of tempting in order to build up character. Is that kind of the reason why demons are allowed to do, I mean, I mean, we just don't know what demons are allowed to do, what they do and take possession and oppress people and infest places. I guess I'm asking you what the, what the, what is spiritual warfare? I guess is like the big question, but I, I don't know. So there, you have to separate what Thomas Aquinas would call their ordinary activity from their extraordinary activity. So the ordinary activity of the demon is temptation. And that's something that God basically allows them to do from yeah, cradle to grave yeah, yeah. for us. Now, temptation, <clears throat> you know, if, if you were to step way back, you would, of course, have to write books on this and work with people that are experts in philosophy and theology. But if I took a stab at it, I would say that with the fall of Adam and Eve and the taint of original sin running a crack through creation, Temptation is a side effect of that presence of the demon in creation and of that taint in creation that we find in our own nature, our own selfish and destructive impulses. Um, and that in order to overcome these impulses and become as Christian as possible, to love one another as I have loved you, um, one has to wrestle with them and gain wisdom and come to the point where if you take a simple thing anybody can relate to, basically anybody can relate to is drinking, right? When you're young or you're in college, most people experiment with drinking when they turn 21. And they have no idea how to really regulate it or get it under control. And there's these interesting side effects and I'm more social and I'm around other people that are really loud and social and it's a whole different world. But also I get into trouble and I make bad choices. And if I overdrink, I get sick. Well, eventually with time, wisdom develops and hopefully you get 
alcohol under control as part of your life, that maybe you keep it as something you drink wine once in a while with a meal, if it goes with the meal, and then other people say, I like to have two beers every day, um, which probably isn't a great idea, but you know what I mean. You eventually, through wrestling with something that is actually a troublesome thing, alcohol is a poison, right? Um, it's a poison for the body, but through wrestling with it, you eventually gain wisdom and control over it and put it in some hopefully ordered place in your life. Same thing with sin and temptation. You need to wrestle with the temptations in your body, in the world, and from the devil directly in order to overcome them and have a better nature expressed and chosen in each moment. And so um, I think that's why it's allowed is one, because it's in our nature, because the world's fallen. And then secondly, it strengthens us because it gives us wisdom. Yeah. Say a person who is is possessed. You mentioned before that in very cases, that is for that person's good. They're on the threshold of, of a spiritual breakthrough. You know, uh, 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 perhaps of, of sainthood, this is the last kind of, you know, hurdle temptation for the ordinary person. I mean, they just, they just dabbled in something and I guess they've just dabbled a bit too far and God said, you know what, I, I'll allow this demon to have, have control of this, of this person. Can we really, I guess maybe we can't really know what the purpose in that, in those cases are, but maybe we can. Right. So that's the second part of the question that you asked. And the answer to that is it's a corrective experience before the person falls into complete damnation. So God is letting you know that the thing that you've chosen to embrace, that you've rejected God for, and the thing that you're hugging, and you're going to go down this path with, he's letting you know that it's an evil, deceptive, destructive thing, so that in that realization, you will reject it and come back to God who loves you. So ultimately, possession is allowed, I think, because God is saying, you've gone so far, you're going to be destroyed soon. I'm going to let you see what is tricking you so that you reject it and come back to me. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. One of the, the, the tropes out there, right, one of the things that are often said about the Catholic Church is that everybody, you know, nobody's Catholic until they need an exorcist, then they call the Catholic Church, right, or something along those kind of lines, right? There's that kind of, th- that knowledge in popular culture, uh, probably uh, dating back probably quite quite a ways, but certainly becoming more popular as as. Uh, Hollywood embraced ideas of exorcism, that the church has some kind of ability, some kind of special authority or special knowledge to, to, to perform exorcisms. And I mentioned before that for me, this was kind of a gateway to Catholicism because I was a non-Christian, a non-Catholic Christian, even evangelical. And I began to read uh, you know, some things that you wrote, other accounts of exorcisms, and began to be intrigued by the idea that, okay, so if these things are happening, if, they're, if th- these, these priests and lay people who are experiencing uh, and working in the field of exorcism, are ac- these things are actually real, well, then there's something here in the Catholic Church I don't have necessarily in my evangelical church. Some kind of power that is greater here, right? Especially when you look at Mary and the saints and their invocation during exorcisms. Because for me, I did not believe in that, right? We didn't believe in the community of the saints. We believe you're dead, you're in heaven, I'll see you later, but right now you have no power to pray for me on earth. You're, you're, a, you're a dead Christian. But I began to see these reports and read these things more deeply, the exorcism and, and the power of the saints in exorcism, the power of holy objects, the power that the church seemed to possess in greater strength than non-Catholic Christian uh, groups. And that, for me, was a draw to look deeper in the Catholic faith. And I, people sometimes laugh at me for, for this perspective, but it, it was. It was an apologetic tool for me to look into the Catholic Church. So what is it, again, in your words, that the Catholic Church holds that's special in the realm of exorcisms? What does the, the Church possess in that? <laughs> no pun intended. Um, yeah, and so your observation isn't a new one, and I'm not picking on your observation, but <laughs> but this this topic has been kind of um, it's been kind of a flashpoint or a testing point since the Protestant Reformation started. Okay, yeah. So yeah. back back in essentially the latter Middle Ages, um, there were dueling exorcisms, and they were public in some cases where. Once a week, the Catholic bishop would come in and pray, 
And then on the other weeks, the Protestant minister would come in and pray, and people would watch to see which church was valid. Um, so this idea of this is one of the few places that it's not just an armchair debate. Well, I think this. Well, I think that. You, you don't have any objective measure. There's no yardstick to measure and say objectively, well, he's right. Okay? This is one of the few places that it seems like you can objectively measure, and either God responds or he doesn't. Yeah, and he yeah, doesn't respond yeah. because you have a better argument or your, you know, your interpretation of the scriptures, quote unquote, better. Doesn't suddenly God then, you know, responds to your prayers. Um, God either responds or he doesn't. And the demons, in a sense, are clarifying because they are so obstinate and arrogant and filled with pride that they will not for very long subject themselves to any human unless God forces it. Yeah, yeah. They may put on a sham for a brief time to inflate your pride, but to sincerely be humiliated and driven out, I don't think they would do that unless God was actually backing that up and making it happen. You know, the ancient Jewish understanding that only God can cast a demon out, I think is correct. Um, that's why Jesus was so, so shocking yeah. at, that, yeah. at that synagogue. That first time when he simply said, come out of him, it, the thing that sent shockwaves wasn't that he did an exorcism. That was common. Jews, there were traveling exorcists. Jews knew about exorcism already. The fact is he didn't invoke anybody's powerful name to do it in. He just did it in his own name. Yeah. And that's what was shocking. So, and I still think that's true. So the, the, Kind of the bottom line is the two things the church has, in my observation, and I'm, you know, I'm born and raised Catholic, but I've spoken at major Protestant conferences multiple times. I've, I've talked with people from many different faiths that have had questions or they've had cases. The two things the church has is the Eucharist, number one, which is Jesus in a particular way, being present, body, blood, soul, and divinity. and you know, that we see that play out in exorcisms, too. I've seen Satan have a dialogue with the tabernacle. We couldn't hear God's side of it, but he was in a body, so we oh. could hear what he was saying. And it was sounded like something right out of the Old Testament. Um, so Jesus is present in a special way. And then secondly, um, the church has the actual solemn rite of exorcism. So the book that was initially put together, it was standardized in 1612. There was many different exorcisms floating around before that in different regions of the world, but they made a universal one, um, I'm sorry, 1614, and um, the revised one in 1999. We finally have the English translation, in, um, uh, I believe it was 2014. I'd have to check, might be 2016. Um, but anyway, 1600s, and then one revision in 1999. So the church has a book, and that's something nobody else has. And that book was based on centuries of experience of doing this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it includes wisdom and do's and don'ts, tips from centuries of experience. So it's not only the text that you just open the book and read it, but it has this introductory section of like, here's 30 things that we figured out over the last 2,000 years that might be helpful to you as an exorcist. Um, now, anybody can get that book, at least the old one. The new one, you have to be a bishop to order it. But if somebody were to pick it up without proper authority, again, the demons are clarifying in the sense that, and we've seen this many times, if a person picks up that book and tries to use it, and you actually have a real demon in a body, it will simply say, you don't have authority over me. That's not going to work. Wow. And if somebody, if a Catholic priest were to pick up that book and not have permission from his bishop, the demon will say, you don't have permission from the bishop. Yeah. You have no authority over me. And it's not that that human being was told that he didn't have permission. Yeah. <laughs> um, they're very big on not being humiliated 
And they're very big on putting human beings down. They really hate us very much. And so any chance to call us on um, authority issues, they will take it. And so kind of the bottom line is a lot of other religions do send the severe full-blown possession cases to the Catholics. Um, because the Catholic Church down through history has had a reputation of being able to deal with these things. Now, the reasons are, I think, because it's the trunk of the tree. Until the Protestant Reformation, yeah. it was the church. This is the church that gave you the Bible, right? This is the church that decided which books go in the Bible. Um, this is the church that, that gave us, you know, the Mass, um, defined the sacraments, all of it, through the Holy Spirit's inspiration. So, and it seems when you actually test it, um, other denominations of Christianity work up to a point. So if it's not a full-blown possession case, deliverance prayers usually work. And deliverance prayers, by the way, to separate it from exorcism, very briefly, it's it's a deprecatory prayer. It's a petition to God to do something, right? So it's, oh, Jesus, please help my father. My dad's suffering. Jesus, please help him. And it's up to Jesus what he does, and it's between Jesus and whatever's troubling that person, right? Exorcism is, in the name of Jesus, get out. So now it's between me and that spirit. I have personally challenged it and given it an order in Jesus's name, but I'm the one that gave the order. So now I've consented to a struggle. I've consented to it pushing back. Just look, I came up to you and said, give me your wallet. I have consented to some conflict with you that you may retort, right? You might push me away. Who knows? I've consented to that by challenging you. So deliverance prayer is, is generally, Jesus, please help this person. I haven't directly challenged the demon. But that only works up to a point. In the severe cases, the demon just gets ticked off and throws everybody around the room and goes home. And we see this in scripture. Um, I don't remember the exact, I can't give you the verses right now, but the story of the traveling exorcists that go in the tent with the possessed person and they didn't have proper authority yeah, to do yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And they, they end up running naked from the tent, beaten and bloodied, right? If you don't have proper authority, you can't just say the words and expect it to happen. It's not a magical incantation. And you know, and that was the apologetic for me was, and this is, I think you have a book on miracles as well. So this is kind of an interesting bookend for, for each of these two things that you have written about, because this was for me the apologetic, right? Okay, if the Catholic Church seems to have that authority to do exorcisms in a way that others can't, invoking the saints on this side. So possession was one apologetic. And then miracles on the other side. If there are these saints who are thoroughly Catholic doing miracles, if there, if there are Eucharistic miracles, you know, the church has these two things. And I looked at that, and that for me was a powerful apologetic that the church has something going on here. Yeah. Yeah, there's objective, real things that you know, when we look at them in detail, you can't explain away. Yeah. You know, schizophrenia doesn't make you suddenly fluent in all languages. And, you know, when we see people deliver to these spirits, dramatic healings happen emotionally, psychologically, physically. You know, I, I've seen amazing things happen instantaneously to where the, their therapist or psychiatrist will call me and say, help me understand what you guys are doing because this person transformed so utterly from one day to two days later after the exorcism, how could they possibly have changed that much for the good so quickly? And it's because that spirit was removed that was causing all this trouble and impairment in the person. Um, So there's things that really cross the line of it's, it's hard to explain away. And the Eucharistic miracles, the healings, the church's standard for healings is very high. It has to be instant, complete, lasting, and have no medical explanation to where the, the doctors that are not Catholic, not Christian, hopefully just completely secular, have no explanation. And that's their standard for a healing that it can be used to substantiate sainthood. That's a really high standard. You know, you're talking about some big tumor that's been seen on the MRI, it's killing the person, it's instantly completely gone, 
never comes back. There's no trace of cancer in their body, and the doctors have no explanation for it. So the church's bar for healings is very high so that it doesn't leave any wiggle room of saying like, well, maybe it was, you know, this other thing. Yeah, that's that's amazing. We are in a, a time, I think, living in a time when there are, we're surrounded by an interest, like never before, I think, maybe spiritualism would be the last, last best example, but of a heightened interest in the spiritual realm, in ghosts and hauntings. There's just, I mean, there's paranormal channels. There's just back-to-back paranormal, you know, ghost hunting shows, uh, UFOs, UAPs, is a different thing altogether, perhaps, but that's also a, a major kind of interest these days. There, the, the supernatural, the paranormal is... Uh, beyond the realm of a boutique interest now, I think, for many people, it's becoming quite mainstream. And I wonder from from your perspective, the dangers in this, the positive things in this, at the same time, you have books like your Exorcism File, you have popular, you know, modern podcasts with exorcisms. Uh, you know, I've heard you on lots of paranormal podcasts. You've done a great job, Adam, on these podcasts, uh, giving the Catholic side of things. Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Is it dangerous that we seem to be more familiar than ever with the paranormal world? Yeah, so ghost hunting, unfortunately, the bottom line is ghost hunting, you're playing with demons. And I've seen enough cases over the years to be very confident about that. Um, They will string you along for a while, but you'll eventually get burned. And most of the paranormal celebrities have had very serious repercussions that they don't put on TV because it's not attractive. And I know a number of them. Um, So, you know, ghost hunting is necromancy. Necromancy for a Christian is forbidden using the word abhorrent, which is rarely used in the Bible about how God feels about something. And he's described as finding the practice abhorrent and that'll turn his face away from you and cut you off from his people. So he's like, you're out. Like that's, that's, it doesn't get stronger than that. Now, why, why is it abhorrent to God? Well, it's a violation of the first commandment. You're turning to a spirit other than God, a created spirit for comfort, information, and power. You've broken the first commandment. You've befriended a demon because no holy angel is going to draw you into that. We went over this earlier in the conversation. So um, the reason it's happening is because the world's becoming less religious, right? So we have an innate built-in desire for God and for spiritual experiences. It's built into us. We've got a compass needle in us figuratively that's looking for God all the time, that's looking for spiritual experiences all the time. And the older we get, the stronger it gets, right? The closer we get to death, the more it's like, where's God? Because I'm looking for a solution to this death thing, right? When we become less religious as a culture, we're not feeding that need. And so people are going to turn to anything they can find that promises to give access to the spiritual. And that's why witchcraft suddenly has a bigger audience now. That's why Satanism is trying to push for a bigger audience because they're promising to fulfill that need and give people access to the spiritual. It's not a good access to the spiritual because God isn't a Pez dispenser that if you push him the right way, he gives you what you want. Magic says, if I say the right words and wiggle my fingers the right ways, zap, I get what I want, right? As if the universe is just a machine that if I learn how to tweak it, I can just push it and get what I want each time. God doesn't work that way. Um, So you're you're basically playing around with demons or your own imagination most of the time because most people, they're just delusional about their powers. Um, People don't have any powers, by the way. (laughs) Demons just give a, a sham of that. Humans don't have any magical powers. Um, So it's a side effect of our culture becoming less religious and the fact that we have a need for spiritual experiences. And the other thing that's going on is as we become less religious, we don't pass on the spiritual cautions and wisdom that we used to pass on in Western civilization, right? So 
Judeo-Christianity was baked into our culture. Like there's a reason Christmas was just Christmas. Like it was just always there. It's part of life. Easter's there. It's part of life because Christianity was baked into the culture, right? So um, we no longer pass on those cautions. People don't even understand why ghost tongue is bad anymore. Most people don't know that Ouija boards are incredibly dangerous, and they are. Some of the worst cases I've seen came from prolonged Ouija board use. Um, you know, the grandmothers still left in the world might be able to tell you, oh, yeah, we, we knew that you never should do that. We would never play around with that stuff. But they're going to be gone soon. Yeah. And the parents don't know these things. And so the kids are watching their phone, and they're getting catechized by the phone. Yeah. They're not being catechized by the church. And honestly, a lot of the priests, sadly, don't know enough about the supernatural and preternatural. They don't preach about it. So we're in a situation where the next generation, they're not getting any of the cautions that civilization figured out over these thousands of years. And the devil's stepping in and saying, here's the shortcut to spiritual experiences. Just, just join me, play around with this stuff that, oh, it's not forbidden, it's fine. Just like in the garden when he said, oh, no, no, that tree's fine. No, no, he, I'm sure he didn't say you shouldn't do that. He's been saying that from the beginning, and he's saying it now. But because we haven't catechized young people, they're vulnerable. They're like, oh, well, it seems harmless. My aunt did it. You know, seemed cool. Witchcraft is great. It's empowering. It's feminism. And if you look into the origins of witchcraft, Gerald Gardner, the guy who basically cooked up Wicca, was an old pervert. And he wanted a bunch of women and him in charge with access to all the women. It wasn't feminism at all. It was run by a guy who liked to run around in the woods as a nudist with a bunch of women. In the 70s, by the way, it's not an ancient pre-Christian religion. This all is real history. It's not not revisionist history. Um, So, but we, we don't know these things anymore. And so part of what the value of what you're doing and other podcasts are doing is this is the way to get some information so people can at least be informed and maybe think about what they're doing before they play with it. Yeah, and I guess that's the value too in you providing counter narratives. So you tell some stories, you tell some exorcism stories in one of your books, Exorcism Files, that might be a bit like, oh, Adam, like isn't that getting a bit too dangerous, getting a bit too close to you know, you know sharing fantastical stories? like this but i guess that from my perspective and you can share your own adam of course the, the that's a counter narrative to like hey well look you've, you've seen this on tv you guys going on the dark doing this stuff well here's what it actually looks like and here's here's catechesis that helps you to be wary of these things does that make sense yeah because <clears throat> as human beings we don't like to be told don't do that yeah nobody likes that and and we're, we often get like bratty kids, like we're more likely to go try it because somebody's saying don't do it. But if you tell me a story about a heroin addict and show me some photos of them before heroin and after yeah, heroin yeah, and describe yeah. how they died at 28 years old. Well, now I'm like, whoa, like, man, this drug is awful. That's stomach turning. I, w- I would never even remotely consider that after hearing you know, say the detailed story of, of the death of a heroin addict. But if if I just say don't do heroin, it's like, well, okay, yeah, it's probably bad, but I don't have any real emotional yeah. uh, conviction. So the point of the book was to share real stories, changing all the details, of course, to you know keep people anonymous, but real stories um, so that maybe you'll get a sense of why we say. You shouldn't play around with certain things like Ouija boards and witchcraft and Satanism. Yeah, yeah. We have a couple minutes left. This has been a fantastic conversation. I could talk to you for hours, Adam. I love this topic, this subject, this approach to the Catholic faith. Is there one, you know, story from the book that you think this is this this is a story that typifies kind of the experience to to say, look, this is what is happening. This is what's out here. Here's the relief in the Catholic Church. Here's the power of the Catholic Church over these kinds of things. Is there one example that, for, in your 
experience that you'd what you'd point to? I mean, instead of sharing like a trying to give a proof story to you know maybe convince a listener that that the church is valid, I would I would encourage you instead that the universal thing that I see in the exorcism cases, which are pastoral things that go on for months or years. It's not just a 10 minutes of a movie. The universal thing that I see is a conversion to Jesus Christ. And we don't preach to people that are, we're praying for. We don't, we don't um, proselytize. We don't try to get them to become Catholic. None of that. Um, We simply pray fervently for their freedom. What I've seen consistently is that people are, drawn to the Eucharist, they're drawn to a relationship with Mary that they didn't have before through their experience of the prayers and the grace that they receive, and then, of course, being liberated. But along the way, the grace that they're receiving, the impact of the prayers, the impact of the relics of the saints, the impact of the rosary, the fact that just touching them with a rosary during the exorcism makes the demons react in a similar way to holy water or relics of saints. Um, and just in their heart, there's a natural conversion that goes on in every single case. If they're Catholic already, now they are deeply Catholic and they, they all say the same thing. I didn't think any of this was real. I've got to tell everybody. Yeah. Um, and if they were Protestant, inevitably, they ask about how do I enter the church because I can tell Jesus is here and I can feel his love when I come here and these prayers are said for me. I can feel the presence of his mother. Um, I feel drawn to the Eucharist. I, I hear these things in case after case. So the encouragement wouldn't so much be like, I don't know, in, in, in kind of a judgmental, separating kind of way, like, this is a true church and you're doing, you're inadequate. You know, other Christian faiths have some of the truth. The Catholic church believes it has the fullness of the truth. But what we see through exorcism, more important than the authority over the demon, is the drawing of people, whether they're not Christian, yeah. they want to get baptized, inevitably, because we'll pray with anybody. So the person who's not baptized wants to get baptized. Then they want to learn what is explaining me about the Eucharist. Why do I feel so strongly about that tabernacle over there? Um, the person that's Protestant is drawn to entering the church. The person that's Catholic already deepens their relationship and their trust with Jesus. Ultimately, this whole thing is a story about conversion. And that conversion through things like this podcast, through the Holy Spirit, not our words, but the Holy Spirit in the people and inspiring the people listening, this will then lead to conversion in other people in their own journey. So that that would be the way I would close this on an encouraging note, because ultimately I think that's what Jesus wants. That's fantastic. You know, and I've, I've spoken to exorcists in the past, some on this show, some just privately by email or by telephone for different purposes, uh, asking questions and those kinds of printing articles, those kinds of things. And Adam, you work with exorcists all the time. And I, I think you're no exception, sir. There is this sense of, of humility, of awe, of the grace of God, of the sense that you are not doing these things, Adam, but but God working through you. I see this in the exorcists I've talked to. I see this in, in you. So thank you. I mean, thank you for being that vessel uh, on that front line of spiritual warfare um, with those exorcists that you're training and, and working with, those teams, exorcism teams. You guys are doing that that hard work and I appreciate the humility uh, and the the uh, you being that conduit for God to work through. Thanks for that, <laughs> Adam. Oh, it, it's not humility; it's just reality. <laughs> like it becomes very clear. Yeah. Jesus is very real. Jesus is present. Yeah, I mean, it, the beautiful side of working in this area is you also get to see God moving. Yeah. Yeah. In extraordinary ways. Yeah. So, yeah, of course, we all know that we're nothing. He's he's doing it all, and he's providing all the protection. He's answering all the prayers. 
So he's where you need to be looking. <laughs> well, fair enough. I guess if you're, if you're seeing those extraordinary things day after day, it's pretty easy to be humble when, when you see God on display like that. That's pretty mm-hmm. awesome, Adam. Mm-hmm. Listen, this has been an amazing conversation. Uh, thank you so much for the, for the work that you do. Thanks for this. I'll put links in the show notes to your fantastic books. I already own most of them. And as the, the rest come out, I'm going to be picking those up too, Adam, and I'll point listeners that way as well. I want to say thank you. God bless the work you're doing for the church. And thanks for being here today, Adam. Appreciate it. Well, thank you very much. God bless you and God bless your listeners. Thank you very much. Well, I hope you absolutely loved that conversation with Adam Bly. What a fascinating guy. What an incredible topic. Uh, and really, truly, guys, I got to say this again. What an amazing apologetic tool for the Catholic faith. For me, it was one of those things that drew me in to ask more questions about what was happening in the Catholic Church in this area of exorcism. Very fascinating. Hopefully you enjoyed that too. Let me know. CordialCatholic at gmail.com is our email address for your feedback. I get lots of emails. Write back to them as soon as I possibly can. So please do reach out. I'll get back to you as soon as I can. And and thank you. TheCordialCatholic.com is our website for show notes and for my blog. And we're on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter, or X, at CordialCatholic. The Cordial Catholic on Facebook. And to watch what you're hearing, head over to YouTube.com slash the Cordial Catholic. And hey, while you're there, I'm trying to grow our channel. It's slowly, slowly growing. And every comment I get on that channel says, hey, this channel should be bigger. And I think, yeah, I, I think you're right. And I wish that it was. So you're subscribing to the channel. You're liking videos. You're interacting. That tells the YouTube algorithm to share the videos with more people. So please head over to YouTube and please do that. That really helps to push the podcast, this, this show, this message, these episodes to more people. And that's the point, right? If you want to help this show out financially, those links are in the show notes for Patreon and for PayPal. And guys, if you're on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify, also leaving a rating or review helps to push the podcast out to more people. So please do that too if you can. And tell a friend that you think might like hearing this episode because I'm sure there's many people out there that you might know. Thanks for listening, guys. Take care and God bless. This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordial A special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.